The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. In today's edition of the Ellis Martin Report, you'll hear several interviews from my short trip to San Francisco for the Cambridge House Silver Summit and Resource Investment Conference. I spoke with the silver guru, David Morgan of TheMorganReport.com, geologist and analyst Brent Cook of ExplorationInsights.com, Greg Johnson, president of Wellgreen Platinum, Keith Newmeyer, president of First Majestic Silver Corp., and Giannis Sotis, president of Gold Source Mines. Additionally, we'll visit with Dr. Brad Thompson of Oncolytics Biotech, as well as Kenneth Eford of Noblest Health Corp., Let's first head to the Silver Summit in San Francisco, though. David Morgan is a world-renowned expert on precious metals, mining, and, of course, money. He's seen on the Fox Business Channel, CNBC, and many other media venues, as well as being a frequent guest of the Ellis Martin Report. About a year ago on the program, David, you would mentioned to me that basically we're at war with Russia. And I think we were talking basically as far as economic and financial issues were concerned with currency and what have you. But I think maybe we're sort of leaning toward the eventuality that there was going to be somewhat of a war between the East and West. How do you feel about that today, given current news? Well, I appreciate the wrap up and I'll agree. What I stated was that we were looking at a currency war. And it was after the Silver Summit last year that we spoke. And what we saw was a oil price decimation, which took the ruble down substantially. And as an aside note, it was the first time I met Bull Pony. He was speaker actually just before me at the Silver Summit again a year ago. And he had predicted that you would see this huge influx of price appreciation in the metals before the end of the year. I didn't agree with that. But what was interesting, if you looked at the gold price in terms of rubles, it did almost identically identically with what he had predicted. And I found that to be rather interesting. Coming back on point, yes, we've gone from basically a financial currency war into the potential of a shooting war. We don't really want a currency war, but it's inevitable with today's financial system that everyone is going to compete to get a competitive advantage on their exports. And this is why that people have a financial survival instinct. In other words, if I cheapen my currency, it helps me to export. That's the thinking. It's not all that valid, although it works in the short term. Basically, it's a race to the bottom, as Jim Dines talks about, who can have the cheapest currency the fastest. It's the big and neighbor strategy that took place in the Smoot-Hartley Act in the 1930s. We know from the history and experience it doesn't work, but yet it prevails again today. Moving on, what I want to say is this shooting war is something that is it's not funny, it's not a joke, it's something we need to take very serious, and it looks like it's escalating. And quite frankly, on a personal basis, it's rather scary. Well, I completely agree with you. It's extremely serious when these things happened. And bringing it back to currency and precious metals and metals like silver, is this the sort of driver that could potentially affect uh, the metals market in a dramatic way. Of course, we'd like to see a steady growth without any spikes, but a spike related to 
a possible shooting war, which in fact is actually going on right now, that sort of sustainable spike is the kind of driver potentially that would really affect our currency in a negative way, drive oil prices up, drive silver and gold up, and then spark the sector in a way that's, as you said, not funny and not fun, but can be profitable. Can I use that word? Yes and no. And I know what I'm saying. If you look at the end of the bull market in 1980, the last driver was Russia moving into Afghanistan, and that war started. And that gave the last oomph to the final phase of the bull market, that last part of that vertical climb. In a bear market, almost any detrimental negative news that should be bullish for gold doesn't move the market. So that's why I say yes and no. In a bull market, any news like that or escalating war, new breakout, whatever, will tend to move the market higher. In the doldrums that we're in now, almost any good news is a non-event to the precious metals market. So what we really want to look for is when it's news-driven. In other words, let's say that this took the metals higher all next week, and I want to see more than one you know, day. And there was talk about, oh, metals are higher, and they get analysts on you know, CNBC and Fox Business or wherever and state, you know, yeah, it's the war-driven, that's why. If you started to see that happen, which I really, really doubt, but if that were to occur, then the momentum starts, and then any news that's further out in the future would tend to bolster the price of the metals. It's not going to happen this time. Should it? Yes. Could it? It could, but it won't. So more possible downside? Yeah, I think that we're in tax loss selling. So the equities are the most extreme undervalued situation that I think I've ever seen in my lifetime. And then there's been a tendency in the last three out of four or five years for the gold market to sell off to the last tick on the last day of trade, which means since most of the main traders are at home relaxing during the holiday season, the few that remain have an agenda, and that agenda is to get the lowest tick in the gold market so the year-over-year price looks as bad as it possibly can. Am I biased in saying that? No, I'm actually stating the fact. Am I biased in saying that they have that as an agenda? Yes, I am. But the facts are there, and for me, they speak for themselves. So it used to be very easy to get a nice quick trade, position trade in the fourth quarter of every year. The probability was over 80% that you could go long gold the fourth quarter and sell out in early January and pocket a pretty nice, neat profit. So there's nice opportunity coming up, probably. No, that seasonality has gone away. <laughs> in the last five years or so, it's been just the opposite. It gets sold off into the last trading day of the year. So that seasonality no longer holds. So I think that's the probability. And because of that fact, Ellis, I'm really thinking that, yeah, we'll probably see a new low in the silver market, meaning we probably get below the 14 level. I don't like to say it. It shouldn't stay there long, but it's certainly chance would favor that outcome more than a turnaround here at the Thanksgiving timeframe. And it's holding at that level right now as we speak. Yeah, I mean, you know, technically, and I'll put on my technical hat for a minute, I mean, we've bounced off the very low 14 level. Someone caught me during the presentation I did yesterday here at the Silver Summit on my keynote and said, well, David actually traded below 14 and got into 13 in the right intraday. I use on a close-only basis. Most professionals use the OCO close-only but or on close-only. But I'm not here to split hairs with anybody. I'm just trying to say that the way I look at the market, yeah, it's held above the 14 level on a closed basis. That doesn't mean that it will. It's done it three in a row, which is positive technical action. But again, to repeat, it looks as if with the month of December before us and the way that the metals have sold off, regardless of why, 
it looks to me like, yeah, I'll probably be able to push it down even more and we'll probably get into the 13s. I mean, Mike Maloney and Mike and I have been friends for years. He was talking from the main podium about uh, possible $7 silver. I actually disagree with that, but I think his point was all taken. What he says is the paper price could be much lower than it is now, but the retail price would probably remain around the $13, $14 level. And that's pretty true because what would happen is you wouldn't see any inventory come in the market. So the little bit that did exist would be bid up on a huge spread, meaning the spread between the bid and the ask would be huge. And if you really wanted physical silver, you'd have to pay up for it. And 14 is as good a number as anything. It's the idea, not the exact price. The idea is you could have a paper price that really disconnects from the physical price. We saw that in the financial crisis of 2008 when the paper price was around nine or less and the physical price was about 1350. I've been asked since I've been here by people who have not attended this conference, what's the pulse? How are people feeling? How is it attended? What can we take away from this conference that we didn't see in prior years, David? What's the positive spin on this Silver Summit this year? Well, first of all, just to break away a second or two, I have to thank Cambridge House, Joe Martin, Jay Martin, everybody involved with Cambridge House for continuing the Silver Summit. Uh, they included me in the decision-making process of what I think about San Francisco. I said, fantastic, I was born there, let's do it. You know, I miss Spokane, but it's been in Spokane for so many years. The positive outcome is there's institutional interest in the resource sector again. There's a whole upstairs floor from the main conference area that there's, let's say, quiet talk going on in uh, value plays in the resource sector. So that's a very important subset of you know what's going on or what's positive about the conference. On the more retail side or the main companies here that are at the show, I think everyone here now is a realist. They know that it's a cyclical market, that nothing stays low forever. Everyone that's here is pretty much prepared for the realistic idea that sure we could have lower prices for another whatever six months some have said a year i don't think it's going to go that long but they're prepared for it if it does and they're also prepared for the fact that uh, all markets ebb and flow go up and down and uh, we're due for this market to start rising again so i like the approach it's not super energetic but i think it's a good turnout i think it's relatively positive And I think that the people are here, probably a subset of previous resource conferences, which means they're probably the most knowledgeable about the sector of anybody I've met at any conference, because the people that have stuck it out this far know why they're in this sector, and they know that the time to buy is when prices are low, not high. So the biggest, best thinking and probably the deepest pockets are actually at a conference like this. Fantastic. And what can we expect to see on the next edition of the Morgan Report, David? Well, we're going to continue on with the mobile mill because it's in a, uh, not really a state of flux, but there is a restructuring that's taken place and it's pending exchange uh, approval. So we expect that by the next time we are able to update uh, the Morgan Report, that we'll be able to comment on it being approved. And then, of course, we'll have comments on the New Orleans conference where I was a keynote speaker and the San Francisco Silver Summit. And we'll be doing two mining updates, company updates that we do almost every month. And of course, the global outlook. I may even delve into what I expect for 2016. I usually do that in the January edition, but I'm thinking actually I might do it because of some of the insights I've gathered from others and what I've studied in the last couple of months on this SDR idea. 
And one thing I'd just like to self-promote a little bit is that we have these cards that we're giving out the show. And anybody that listens to me, the Ellis Martin Report, can get on our free email list at themorganreport.com backslash get started. So we put out a paid report for those that are serious in money, metals, and mining. We're way beyond just doing silver. We look at all the resource sector. But if you just want the insights for free, you can get on our free list, which is, again, themorganreport.com backslash get started. I appreciate you joining me today on the program. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you, Ellis. You can find David Morgan and his opines, as well as those of others, on his website, themorganreport.com, where you can become a subscriber. And you can listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Also downloadable on iTunes. As we continue my interviews at the San Francisco Silver Summit, here's Brent Cook of ExplorationInsights.com. Brent, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Good to see you again. Last time I interviewed you, I think maybe a year, year and a half ago, you were saying that most of the companies back then at the conference we were at in Vancouver weren't going to be around much longer. Turns out you're right. Yeah, it's been a long, slow process. There's still many more companies around than I expected, but it's been great in that, like at this show, there's not many companies here, but this is sort of the survivor's ball, as far as I can see. Do you like the companies here for the most part? Yes, I do. I mean, I own some of them. They're all legitimate, as far as I can tell. They're doing good work, and they've got to have the money to come here and do something, so they've got that advantage as well. So you're pretty satisfied with the course of time as far as weeding out the chaff with regard to resource companies? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to go. I've been pretty negative for four years now. I think you know that. I'm turning. I don't know when the bottom's going to come or when it's going to turn up or that sort of thing, but certainly it's so depressing and so downright awful that how much worse can it get? When the answer is, well, not much worse, it's probably time to start buying. I'm going to start moving in. You're holding fast, probably not accumulating any more stocks, not enlarging your position, but you're getting ready to do so, right? No, actually, I added to a position today. I'm hoping to do a few more by the end of the year. I'm actually looking at bringing on another geologist to help with the workload. We're going to start looking at mid-tier producers in that. I think that's the part of the first thing that's going to move. So I'm going to bring on someone who knows those better than I and start working on those. Who did you buy? today and why? I'm not done buying. Uh, It's something we own in in the newsletter I've talked about often. So subscribers will find out this weekend. Fair enough, fair enough. You like big deposits and you like to find them as a geologist. Are you still out there doing that? Certainly, that's my passion. That's what really, really makes money is if you can get early in on a legitimate discovery that turns into something large enough to be bought by a mining company, that's the best money you're going to make in this sector. And you have no particular flavor preference, do you? I don't care what the metal is. Well, actually, I'm not going to do coal or iron, but in base metal or pressure metal, I don't care per se because you've got something that's in the top quartile in terms of economics and size, it's going to be valuable. Now, I believe a couple of years ago you were very interested in Colombia. Does that remain the same as, or is there any other particular place on the planet that you like right now? Colombia geologically is still fantastic, but it hasn't worked out politically. It's, it's, it's a bit of a quagmire there, so I've backed away from Colombia some. I'm going much more positive on Argentina with the election. I think that's probably a place to get back into. Chile always, Peru always, Brazil probably, areas like that. Mexico, of course. What about the United States and Canada? Depending on where you're at, sure. The problem we've got in the U.S. is certainly Nevada, the basin range, is this sage-grouse issue. And until that's resolved... That really limits where you can explore and mine. That could be a a big, big problem if if how that plays out. So I would keep track of that. What do you think about gold and silver? You getting excited about silver or, again, does it matter? I'm neutral. I've never been a silver bug or a gold bug per se. Again, to me, it's all about economic deposits. Uh, I don't care what the metal is. How have you profited during the downturn that we've been in for quite some time? 
in the letter, we've actually done pretty well. I think right now, for the year, we're probably down 9%, 10%. That's because, one, I'm, I'm really cautious. This is my money. So I'm cautious of what I buy, and I'm really quick to sell if something goes wrong. And things we bought two, three, four years ago, I've sort of sold some of those. So we show a profit on those, something we bought earlier and, and are selling now. This year alone, it's been tough to find things to buy. We made money early on selling off some uh, mid-tier producers and such, and then it's been pretty tough since. Are you buying any of the big guys at all? No, I'm not buying any of the big guys. I'm looking at some mid-tiers. That's where I want to put my next chunk of money. Cost of production must factor into uh, your decisions, right? It's all about cost of production, free cash flow, and profitability. You know, there's been a lot of talk at this conference about optionality, big low-grade deposits and that. In my experience, big marginal low-grade deposits are always big marginal low-grade deposits no matter what the price and people put them into production right at the peak and go bust. That's not my game plan. So you're looking for high grade, near surface, and low cost of production, perhaps with another metal involved, further adding to the uh, negative cost of production, maybe? Yeah, I prefer to say high margin. Grade depends on too many things. It's just high margin. You want a deposit that has a nice high margin. What's the difference between this particular doldrum or bust, if you will, than the one that occurred in the late 90s and early 2000s? I see them as actually pretty similar. It's a good question. A young subscriber of mine came up last year. What was it like last time? Because he, you know, he just got into this in 2006, I think. And it was a good question. I wrote up two articles on it. They're on my website, explorationinsights.com, and they're titled, What Was It Like, Dad? Part 1 and Part 2. And I go through what it was like, and I think it's worth anyone reading those to get a feel for how bad it really was and how good it really got. So I think that's going to happen again. There was absolutely no interest in the mining sector whatsoever. The euro was just becoming a reality on the market and uh, no one was looking. And then the good times were incredible for quite a long time. And if you knew what you were doing, even as a trader, you could profit. And you see that coming again. I do. Right now, nobody cares. Nobody cares about this sector. Even the people are in it don't care. They hate it. You can talk to people at this show. They'll say, yeah, it's cheap. It is cheap. I've never seen it this cheap. And you ask them, well, what are you buying? Nothing. I hate this sector. That's when you want to buy. Then why is this conference so well attended, in your opinion? Well, it's a small venue, so it looks more crowded than it is. I think that's one reason. It's a good lineup of speakers. And really, you're looking at the survivors. This is the survivors, and it's a good time to be here. How does one become a subscriber of yours? It's real simple. You go to my website, there's a button up top that says subscribe here, and you can subscribe. The letter comes out basically every weekend, plus a few alerts. It's billed by the month, and uh, everything I've written, bought, and sold is there. And if you don't like it, you just quit. Brent Cook of ExplorationInsights.com. It's always a pleasure to get the straight scoop from you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thanks, Alice. That was Brent Cook again of ExplorationInsights.com. Next, I'll speak with longtime friend of the show and sponsor Greg Johnson, president of Wellgreen Platinum. Wellgreen Platinum trades on the TSX as WG and on the OTCQX as WGPLF. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Greg, welcome back to the program. Thanks. It's good to be back. Now, last time we visited, I believe it was last summer in Los Angeles. What has changed? What has happened during the last few months of significance with regard to Wellgreen? Well, Wellgreen as a company has continued to advance. We have a very large platinum 
palladium nickel resource up in the Yukon Territory of Canada. And we've continued to advance over that period since we last met. The company has delivered a, a major update on its economics and engineering earlier this spring. And we just announced this month that uh, one of the largest mining-focused private equity groups, Resource Capital, has invested just a little under $12 million into the company in a very challenging market after a long due diligence period of review and assessment. So we're quite pleased to see them come on board. So the clearly looking long-term as to the turnaround of the market, especially with regard to platinum and palladium and, let's say, the automotive sector. Absolutely. You know, our sense from them is they believe that this is one of those markets that is the classic blood in the streets when investors are able to buy things at prices that are extreme undervaluation. And I think they see Wellgreen because of its location in Canada next to an existing highway with the team and the resource we've been able to put together as an exceptional opportunity. And they want to be part of advancing this towards a production decision over the next couple of years. How does that particular investment affect your current shareholders as far as their position is concerned? They have now become our largest single shareholder. And as many companies at our stage, your transition from mostly individual shareholders to an institutional shareholder base is a natural transition that we go through. So we're very pleased to have them come in along with the Orion Mine Finance Group last summer to become new high-profile investors in the company. And I think in terms of your listeners, it can give them comfort to know that these are technically very detailed groups in terms of what they look at, that they have a strong understanding of the business, and they have a buyer's market. The opportunity that they've chosen to come into Wellgreen is a, a good sign that this is an asset of quality. Do you think it's a good sign for the sector overall? I think it's a sign that we have new money coming to the table. Private equity has not historically played a large role in mining, so it's interesting that we're seeing these private equity groups raising money, focus on mining. I think what it's an indication is is valuations are very low and that they see opportunity in this sector to put in an investment and turn that dollar into three or five dollars with, you know, three or four or five years of work. Now, how did this take place? Did they do any of the courting? Did you do the courting? How did this marriage happen? Well, it was a relatively natural process for us. We had just completed a major update on the economics and engineering and approach to the project. And so we actually ran a a fairly formalized process where we had up to 12 private equity groups looking at the company in terms of potential investment and ran that through with them completing site visits, meetings with the government, with the native people. So very, very thorough. We feel that we've gotten the best possible investor for the best possible terms for our company and for our shareholders. Looking ahead, perhaps two or three, four or five years, where do you see the offtake going? Well, this uh, product, we're going to produce what's called a concentrate. It's going to go to a a smelting group, either in North America, Asia, or Europe are the main uh, smelting groups. So the next phase of work that we're going to be doing is really to take our level of understanding on the project to a pre-feasibility level. That's a stage just before feasibility and construction. And to really understand what the product's going to look like and what the best fit is. And that's one of the things that I think resource capital can assist us with. You've got one of the biggest properties in North America of its kind. Yeah, it's quite rare, just geologically. Gold deposits, copper deposits are are fairly common. They occur throughout the world. In the PGM space and nickel space, 
it's a much more confined geographic region that you see these deposits. And most of the world's platinum and palladium, for instance, is produced in southern Africa or Russia, so high political risk areas. So well grain is quite unusual in its occurrence here in North America, and it stands out as an opportunity in terms of its scale of potential production. It could be the second largest producer of PGMs outside of Africa or Russia, and it could be likewise the second or third largest producer of nickel. Do you think the catalytic converter is something that is going to eventually phase out, will it always be a factor in automotive transportation? Well, right now, this is tried and true technology. The auto manufacturers know it works for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, the life of an automobile. Undoubtedly, there will be technology that will come along at some point. To date, that technology has been mostly about improving the efficiency of those converters, using less metal to get the same effects. And in the overall cost of an automobile, this is pretty low cost material. There's a few grams of platinum and palladium in a catalytic converter. So you're looking at something that's $100, $150 worth of metal that goes into that technology in a twenty dollars or $30,000 automobile. Most analysts don't see anything on the horizon today that's going to be a radical game changer in terms of that. We all know most of our environmental standards globally are going up, not going down. So I think this is a market that this particular slice of demand, and it's about half of the world's consumption of platinum and palladium goes into these catalytic converters, is going to continue to grow. It's been growing at about 4 to 5% annually since the mid-1980s, and it doesn't look like it's going to be slowing you know, at any point. What's interesting is that as that demand has been growing so steadily, many people don't realize that the production of platinum and palladium metals from global mining has actually peaked in 2006 and has been falling for the last eight to 10 years. And so a project like ours, which is outside of Africa and Russia, where most of that production has been, but has peaked and has fallen, is going to be, I think, particularly of interest, you know, even potentially to the auto manufacturers who are going to be looking to source stable sources of supply for their catalytic converters. What are you going to be doing with most of the funding that you just acquired? Where does that pan out during the next few years? Well, what this funding does for us now is we're undertaking a pre-feasibility level program. We're ramping up a drill program now. We're going to have up to six drills turning on this project over the next several months. So we're going to be collecting new samples for testing. Uh, we're going to go into an intensive program of understanding the recovery characteristics and really taking it to the next level in terms of our understanding on the project. What's the product we're going to produce? What's the quality of those projects? And what's the best home for that project? So it's going to be, I think, a relatively exciting period for our shareholders in terms of the work that's being undertaken and a period of a significant news flow and, we hope, you know, major milestones that, despite the challenging market conditions, uh, can allow us to, to add value for our shareholders. I see more excitement in your face, and I hear it in your voice than I did in June, not that you weren't excited then. So what's been the game change with regard to your passion? Well, it's been a very challenging market. As you know, you follow the sector closely. You know, most of the metals peaked in 2011 in terms of their valuations, and it's been a very difficult bear market for all of us uh, since that period. It's now going on to become almost one of the longest cycle corrections that we've seen in the last 30 years. It's uh, similar to the 1996 to 2001 bear market. So many analysts think we, we may be getting close to the end of this cycle. It's hard to know exactly where you are. But I'm encouraged that we're seeing high-quality investors who know our space, who are now looking for values. They're looking for quality names to invest in today. I think the takeaway that we heard today at this conference was we don't know exactly where we are, but we're much closer to a bottom now than we are to a top. And if you're a longer-term investor, you'll want to be buying these bargains in this area down the road, give it two years, give it three years, you're going to probably see values that are much higher than currently based on historic cycles that we see in this industry. 
I believe that as well. I've been speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Wellgreen Platinum. Wellgreen trades in the U.S. under the symbol WGPLF and on the TSX as WG. Greg, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thanks a lot for having us. Remember, you can find this segment and all of our interviews on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Continuing with our visit to the Cambridge House Silver Summit and Resource Investment Conference in San Francisco, let's take a look at the number two silver producer in Mexico, First Majestic Silver Corp, listed under the symbol AG on the New York Stock Exchange and FR on the TSX. Welcome CEO and President Keith Newmeyer to the Ellis Martin Report. Well, thank you. I first met you in London probably about eight years ago at a uh, silver conference over there. Give us a little backstory about the company in the last eight years, where you've come from and, and where you're headed. Well, you know, I put this company together back in 2002. We acquired our first uh, mine in 2004, January 2004. Out of the six mines we have on our portfolio today, I bought four of them from January 2004 to June of 2006. First Majestic became the second largest silver producer in Mexico in its 10th year anniversary. And 2016 is our 13th year in the business, and uh, we'll produce about 17 million ounces of silver next year. Now, did you take all these mines into production? You've got six producing mines now, which is fantastic, and, and it's pretty rare in this particular sector. You're not quite a, a junior mining company at all anymore. Yeah, and these are very unique mines. Most silver comes as a byproduct, and these the six mines are predominantly silver mines, so they are rare. And 70% of our revenues from the sale of silver, which makes us the purest silver company in the world as well. But in the future, we've got still three really good projects that will become mines uh, in Mexico. And you asked, you know, did we buy these mines? is producing assets so we build them ourselves and in some cases yes in the case of three of the mines we built them from scratch and the other three mines we bought as producing mines already and you're working twice as hard now for less the market cap but you've been known to sit through these cycles and come out on top well i've been doing this for 34 years and uh, i'm probably working harder today than i have in the last 10 years anyways yeah i'm a workaholic i i love this business and i love what i do so at least it does put a smile on my face even though i, I do work very hard now, I know you recently acquired Silvercrest Mines, and that was a, a great acquisition. Congratulations. Anything else coming up in the future that you're allowed to talk about, hint at, or uh, point toward? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, interestingly enough, though, let me just talk about Silvercrest just for a second before I can go back to your question. I put this portfolio together, this, this company together, by buying mines that were poorly run. Either they weren't operating at all, or, or they were just very badly run. High cost structures, low production. Uh, we came in with our management team, our money, our time, uh, did the necessary work to improve them all. And of course, that took capital, which which I was able to raise in the public markets and so on. And, you know, we built, I think, quite an exciting silver business. But in the case of Santa Elena, this is our first acquisition that we've ever done in the history of the company, whereby the mine did not need a single dollar of investment. It was a beautiful acquisition for us. Thirty million dollars in cash in the bank. Uh, it's spinning off three to four million dollars in profit each quarter, producing four and a half million of silver uh, equivalent a year. Half of that's gold, half of that's silver. So it's just a great acquisition for us. So to do that, it was a no-brainer. We paid 105 million for it. In my view, that's very cheap for an asset like that. So, But there's not a lot out there. You know, we've looked at Mexico up and down, and we know Mexico very well. But most of the assets that are available to be purchased really require big investment to turn them around make them into better operations and we just don't simply 
simply want to risk our own balance sheet in this current environment because I can't trust the capital markets to give me the money to be able to make the necessary investments. So I'd have to tap into our treasury to do that. And I'm not just willing to do that quite yet in this environment. But we are looking at some small situations like the junior sector, for example. You know, there's a junior mining company maybe with a few hundred thousand hectares of land. It's expensive for them to hold on to it. So, you know, for them to sell us one of their projects, it's almost like an embedded financing for them. We can put something into our inventory for the future. And and those are the kinds of things we're looking at currently. What about further development of the property you already own, Silvercrest, for example? Yeah, we've got a big, big land package. You know, with six mines, obviously we've got a lot of land. And then we've got three development projects on top of that. So there's a lot of places to spend money. I would love to be able to spend 20 or $30 million in expiration a year. And we should really do that, but we can't. You know, it's, it's just uh, this environment is not the right environment to be spending that kind of money. We need to hold on to our capital just in case you know things do get even more challenging. So in, in 2015, I think we've only spent about $6 million in expiration. 2016, we're just doing the budgets now, but the number will be around that number. It's unfortunate it's that way because these properties are big properties and there's a ton of silver on these properties, which we would love to be able to develop and then explore for, but we just can't in this current environment. And you don't need to right away. Well, the market's not going to pay us for it anyways. All categories, you've added up all our ounces on all our mines. You know, we've got about 500 million ounces of silver in all categories, you know, and the market doesn't care. Keith, like anyone else attending this particular conference, your interest in what's going on and the panel discussions that have taken place is certainly an expert. What's your take on the market, where it could be going? Any prognostication you'd care to make right now? Well, I put together a new company, as you probably know, a company called First Mining Finance. You know, I mentioned earlier about, you know, when we bought the assets that we currently hold in First Majestic, where I bought four of the mines during the 18-month period, and I'm doing the same thing with First Mining, because I think the valuations that we're seeing right now are just so ridiculous. You can buy ounces in the ground for less than $10 an ounce gold, for example, which I've not seen in my 34 years being in this industry. You know, I'm excited about the valuations out there. It's tough for First Majestic, because, you know, obviously, we have to work in an environment and try to make profit at $14 an ounce, which we're now finally doing after many quarters of changes to the business. So on one side, from First Majestic's standpoint, it's challenging. And on the other side, from First Mining Finance, it's a great environment because we're buying great assets. What would you say to potential investors taking a look at your company now for the very first time or the second time and deciding to maybe get involved? Well, first, they have to like silver. Our stock moves dramatically with the price of the metal. So, you know, even though, you know, we could build the business and, and it is an exciting business and we can make a profit at current metal prices, if the silver price goes down, the stock's not going to do very well. You know, that's just a fact. So you have to have a view on silver. And if you have a view on silver, then First Majestic, and you like silver, obviously, First Majestic is a great way to play silver because our share price moves two to three times the level that silver price moves. And it's proven to do that you know, over the last 10 years. You should, probably should have some physical metal because I, I personally have physical silver in my portfolio. But the First Majestic stock does move way faster than the metal itself. So you should have both. And First Majestic is the purest silver company in the world. So it's really exposed to the silver price. Speaking of physical silver, you're basically a bullion dealer now, aren't you? <laughs> well, you know, we do sell some silver off our website. You can go onto the website and have a look. we got some interesting products there. But, you know, it's a bit of a side business. And you know, our shareholders love it because, you know, it's got our name on it. So they love to have a little bit of our silver. It comes from one of our mines in Mexico. Keith Newmeyer, President and CEO of First Majestic Silver Corp. Thank you so much for joining me today at the Silver Conference in San Francisco. It's a pleasure. Well, thanks very much for your time. 
First Majestic Silver Corp. trades on the TSX as FR and on the New York Stock Exchange as AG. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Now as we continue with a look at just a few of the companies and speakers at the Silver Summit and Resource Investment Conference, join me for a conversation with Giannis Sotis, the president of Gold Source Mines, soon to be a gold producer in English-speaking Guyana in South America. Gold Source trades as GSX on the TSX Venture Exchange. Thanks, Ellis. Thanks for the invitation to talk. Tell us about this company. I understand that after only eight weeks, you've gone into gold production. Yes, that's a, quite a rare case, I guess, uh, within this environment. That Yeah, we are a company that uh, we expect before the end of January, we will start putting the first gold. So we are about 95%, I would say, in the construction side of the mine. And the key assets called Eagle Mountain. It is located in Guyana, South America, the only English-speaking country of South America and a secular democracy with a lot of history in mining and one of the biggest parts of GDP generated out of sales of gold and bauxite. So we feel very proud that we have come to that point and fully financed, no debt existing in the company and I can tell you more about the project as we go. How much gold do you plan on producing in 2016? What are your estimates? The estimates we have with one shift because that's what plan to start is going to be close to 10,000 ounces okay but this is a bootstrap operation is probably the opposite of other things that you see around here and I'll tell you a paradigm or your listeners or investors should pay attention to probably a plot try to see capitalization of companies against capital expenditure needed for their project so now we are in a low market okay everybody knows that lots of stories here are undervalued okay and people keep some great assets so sometimes let's say um, in our case we are 20 million dollar company and our deposit has the capacity to produce 75,000 ounces annually all right now for that thing I need about 175 to 200 million dollars so if I walk to a bank tomorrow and I say I'm a public company listed or financial stage for the last 10 years fantastic and all that I am 20 million dollar company and I need 200 million dollars what do you think they will say okay they say they do some due diligence or they will not even do the due diligence but they will say fantastic project but no check today sir all right so here we are doing the opposite and gold helps you on that as a commodity because it's not having a difficult metallurgy or or the way you will extract it from surface ore or the oxide cap we call on top of our deposit so we start something as a first phase development with about 5.2 million dollars capex okay which we succeeded last year to raise a 7.1 million actually after all and even without any debt we are going to produce at about thousand tons a day operation about 10,000 ounces as I said for first year but then we are betting we have done a lot of uh, engineering studies independent people did engineering studies on us we have compliant data out on CEDAR encourage listeners to go and check about us uh, as GXS as we trade on TSX Venture but find all the information on the web about us and see our technical reporting or the people that they wrote is 43 on one so the biggest thing here is low operating costs. So we want to operate at the less than $500 per ounce on cash cost in Guyana. And when I put all sustaining capital, overheads, royalties, cost in Canada, our salaries and so on, we don't exceed $630, $650 per ounce. So the moment I deliver, as you understand that, I leave enough profit margin in order to keep reinvesting that free cash flow to grow the mine. So yes, I do start at 10,000 ounces 
courses, but next year will be 18,000, the following 24, 36, and going on like that. And of course, if the gold price helps us to move upwards, we will do that much faster. So you don't anticipate having to go to the quote-unquote bank to grow your operations anytime in the near future, do you? No, and apparently we have a line of credit already organized, but we haven't drawn upon it because we had it only as a soft pillow there in case we have major delays on the construction. But everything worked well, and some part of the mine will be commissioned before Christmas, but the whole line will really initiate around the 15th of January. So, answering your question, we don't intend to hit the capital markets very soon and dilute our shareholders. And that's the beauty of this phase development approach, is that you mitigate your risks as you go and you don't dilute your shareholders. And that's a beauty when people come to buy your stock. That is beautiful. How many shares are available right now in the market? We have about 126 million shares issued and outstanding. And our biggest shareholders, I can name them, I mean, the management itself is participating in all three recent financings. So we control about 16% as management directors. We've got major American fund out of New York, Donald Smith Value Fund, that controls 16% of the company. And then I Am Gold, the subsidiary of I Am Gold, major producer, Canadian fund of Toronto, is controlling 5%. So, on the balance, we've got more than 1,500 shareholders, very loyal, some of them, and uh, they stay with us because they see the whole upside. You had the company, and folks probably wouldn't mind knowing a little bit about your background. I'm a physicist, geophysicist. I have 29 years' experience in the mining space, and of which 19 years were with BHP Billiton. So, I was working for the biggest mining company out there. Half of my career with them was technical, and the other half, I was the business development manager for BHP's exploration team. So, I have done business in 32 countries, in 11 different commodities, I have seen a lot of mines, and I know how to mitigate risk and create value, no doubt about that. The point here, however, is not about me. We have an incredible team between board and managers. We have more than 250 years of collective experience, and you will see our history, people coming from Newmont or BHP like me or Placer Dome and other gold producers and so on. But most importantly, we have discovered deposits, we have made mines in other parts of, of the world, and we have sold companies too. So we don't try to do it for first time. We have been there, and I encourage any listener to come and check Gold Source Mines Incorporated. And what is your share price currently? Our share price is 17 cents. <laughs> I'm uh, shy to say that. We are 17 cents. But I would say something. We don't really at least do much marketing because at this phase in the last six months, we are focused into more moving all our dollars into the construction and just because we didn't want to hit the capital markets and go overrun but we are on time and under budget as it seems at the moment so we will definitely 2016 will be better year and there's no doubt that some of this free cash flow has to go into marketing and therefore more people knowing about us but it's a general phenomenon. It's not only us. You know, I mean, being a $20 million company at this level with 1 million ounces and an open deposit, you know, that to grow, to become much bigger, it's a common thing out there. You know, what is not common is people who have this asset to go to production so quickly and deliver free cash flow in less than two months. Well, you really can't survive as a junior mining company unless you're prepared to go into production or you are in production. And if I was laughing at your share price, I'm only laughing because I see it as a potential opportunity. And that's what puts a smile on my face. Oh, absolutely. And I appreciate that comment. We also see it as an opportunity. We hope to deliver value to existing and future shareholders by our activities in Guyana, South America. Yeah.
Well, Giannis, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. I've been speaking with Giannis Sitos, the president and CEO of Gold Source Mines Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS. Giannis, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. Thanks a lot. And that's just a peek at this year's Silver Summit and Resource Investment Conference in San Francisco, put on by Cambridge House. A success, in my opinion. Speaking of which, in my capacity only as a journalist and speculator, nothing more. I am not a financial advisor or analyst. Let me just say, it might be a good time to buy silver. Do you have questions that need answers about our sponsor companies? Contact them. Find the logos of all of our sponsors on the homepage of our website. Click on them and learn more about our client companies. EllisMartinReport.com Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brant Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. How does one who is diagnosed with cancer work through the shock of the discovery? It's a bit of a revelation when you get a phone call from a doctor to say, you've got something here and we've got to take care of it. In my case, with my general practitioner with a mole that was not a mole, she took a biopsy and I just kind of forgot about it. And the next morning I got a phone call. Oh, hi, Brad. I'm operating on you on Monday. This was on a Friday. And I'm like, what? It was a bit of a shock, I have to say. You know, when one minute life is fine and the next minute life is kind of tenuous. I have a, a bit of an advantage because this is the business I'm in. So I was able to kind of go through and evaluate the option, which I would encourage people to do especially in, in some cancers. The field is moving so quickly, it's unreasonable and candidly a little unfair to expect a practitioner in the area to spend the 10 minutes a day. They're not helping patients out, keeping up on the newest therapies. I had the surgery and all the follow-ups and those sorts of things, but it's something that you have to be on guard with for the rest of your life. I mean, I had, I had melanoma. This sort of thing that when you hear that M word, you know that for the rest of your life, you're going to have to be watching because you're never safe. You're never cured. And it changes everything. It changed how I approached going outside. And it changed the you know, diet. It changed habits. My family, of course, it changed their perspective on me. You sort of look around at Brad in this case and think he's kind of eternal. And all of a sudden, the next day, he's not. It's a big change in your outlook and a big change in your perspective. But it's certainly having that personal experience. And then I had a couple of other close family members die within months of that happening of cancer. It really focuses you on what's, I think, important, you know, the business side of my life, which is developing a drug for cancer. Let's talk about your proprietary technology, Reolysin, which is essentially a real virus designed to attack cancerous tumors like a virus would, leaving the surrounding cells intact. Well, the real virus is a very common virus found in the environment. If you're outside and it's raining and you're splashing water on your legs, you're splashing real virus on your leg. And that is absolutely true. It's found almost everywhere in the environment. It's because it's a virus that affects mammals. So dog can get it and pass it on to a squirrel who can get it and then pass it on to a cat who can then pass it on to you. It's a virus that infects people but doesn't cause the disease. The reason we're interested in it as a cancer therapy is that, you know, in the literature, in the scientific literature, since the 1800s, every few years, somebody would note that a patient was dying of cancer and would come down with a mild flu-like illness, mysteriously basically leap out of bed, and they'd be fine. As a result of that, there's a number of viruses that are under development for cancer research. Now, the real virus is 
different than the rest of them. Every one of them is unique. Because it's so commonly found in the environment, we just had a feeling that it would be safe. And it has a very special set of unique properties and a twofold way of actually working. The first way is if you have the right genetic profile. There's certain genetic defects that lead to cancer. And if you have the right genetic profile, then the virus, when it enters into a cancer cell, will replicate and kill that cell in two or three days. Real virus all by itself without the immune system or anything else is effective at combating tumor growth. And we've shown in multiple clinical studies now that the virus is actually reducing tumor burden in patients. And that by itself has a lot of value. We've been kind of looking for years about differential effects and overall survival, which is the other thing that people are interested in, of course, in, in cancer therapy. What we think is happening with the real virus is that the virus, any lifespan benefits you may accrue on that, comes from it interacting with the immune system. It actually increases the immune response against tumors by replicating in tumors. And so the body looks at it and goes, that's a virus infection. It's in a specific tissue, and I'm going to attack that virus infection wherever it is. And in this case, it's in a tumor. And so you amount effectively like the same kind of defense you'd have against an infectious disease, a bacterial infection, or if you have a parasite, I mean, you get the same, all the same kind of immune responses. And it's targeted against where the virus is, which in this case is in a tumor. So real virus helps the immune system by basically visualizing the tumor. It's like I'm here and the immune system attacks it and it looks like it's doing that. The second thing it does is it actually upregulates these things called agents, PD-1, PD-L1 is what people will, may have heard. And they actually interfere with that immune response, but that allows all these new drugs that are based on that to actually work better. So you have a virus infection that's killing tumor directly that causes the immune system to do something directly, but it also works with these new classes of drugs that people are working at to focus right on the thing that needs to count, which is helping the immune system do its job. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX and ONC on the TSX. Listen to this segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for an interview with Ken Eford of Noblest Health Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange's HLTH and on the Toronto Stock Exchange's NHC. Noblest owns and manages ambulatory and acute healthcare facilities to deliver healthcare services. Their focus is improving access to care and patient outcomes by providing minimally invasive procedures that can be performed in low-cost outpatient settings. They utilize innovative direct-to-patient marketing and proprietary technologies to drive patient engagement and education. Nobilis owns and manages seven surgical facilities in Dallas, Houston, and Scottsdale, and has contractual partnerships with six other facilities in Arizona, Oregon, Michigan, Minnesota, Tennessee, and New Jersey. Ken Eford oversees business development for Nobilis. Ken, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. How would you describe your position at Nobilis? Really, just overseeing business development. My duties range from everything from my legacy of operations. I was previously the COO to currently helping with M&A and looking at launching new verticals like in the ancillary space. Now, how has business development with regard to Nobilis increased revenue during the past 12 months for the company? 
in multiple ways. We've seen our growth within the company be one of organic and through acquisition and through de novo. Organically, we've grown as we've brought new facilities online, as well as reinvigorate past relationship with physicians, as well as through acquisitions like we received in Q4 of 2014 with APHIS and, and enhancing a very robust marketing program, as well as de novo with the launch of our intraoperative monitoring and first assist programs all of which have made a significant impact to revenue as well as earnings. Of course, this is very unique. But what else is unique about Noblis as compared to other healthcare-related companies of this kind in the space? So those would be somewhat comps in our space or our facility owners and operators. And, and that we are to our core, and that's what we started out as. And we are very good operators, but where we're different from our competitors, one is easy to identify is our marketing abilities. We have a class marketing division that has allowed us to go out and directly source patients and surgeries for our facilities and our network of physicians. That's a key differentiator. Also, our ability to have innovative products within the market, whether they be a surgical technique, a physician service, or a complement of services like we've done with the ancillary services. The beauty of bringing those verticals online is it allows us to enhance the patient and provider experience while increasing our continuity of care. So we make sure that the surgeon has the anesthesia provider that they know and love, the IOM tech that they're comfortable with, the first assist that knows their movements and their, and their behaviors. So we have increased clinical outcomes, as well as clinical operations or efficiencies. We have shorter cut-to-close times because of these enhancements. Typically, surgeons aren't schooled in marketing. This is something that they are not taught. So really, when they align themselves with Nobilis, they can, in many instances, dramatically increase their own revenue stream. Yes, sir, that's absolutely correct, and that's to our benefit. Direct-to-consumer marketing in the medical space historically, or years ago, was considered taboo. It was predominantly around the dental and plastic spaces, but as we have found that patients are playing a more active role in their medical decision-making, they are out there seeking information, and with the Internet, they have plenty of it to digest. But what that provides us is real opportunity to interject our messaging and direct them into our system. Now when we have surgeons who try to do marketing, they try to do online and have their website, often they fail because they lack the proper infrastructure to properly execute on any of those media dollars spent. So we have a desire by our physician partners or those within our facilities, but yet they have an inability to execute properly. So that when we bring to them our marketing products, it's with open arms as received. I know you're quite successful with your marketing strategies in attracting these types of professionals. Are professionals also also reaching out to you due to your across-the-board marketing efforts, both with surgical staffing and patients? Yes, sir, that's correct. That was one of the positive side effects, if you will, of us running Direct Response TV and online is we were getting out there in front of the surgeons in our market, and the associated clout that came with it was not only surprising but impressive. And to where the, we're now, we're no longer having to knock on doors. We still do identify key surgeons and seek them out, but we're also having surgeons contact us wanting to be a part of our marketing system. So it would be safe to say that in the regions that you serve, you're setting a standard for consumer or patient care, if you will. 
Absolutely, yes, sir. Give us an overview of your management team, if you don't mind. Our management team comes from several different breeds and ideologies, if you will, and pedigrees. We have a great depth of knowledge from the legal front, the accounting and finance, the marketing, and clinical operation. And what that has allowed us to do is have such great depth on our bench that we can execute and grow as we have experienced over the years and continue to grow. And as we continue to enhance our operations and grow within different verticals, we'll allow our management team to continue to be more specialized as we bring on additional talent. Ken, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for joining me on the program. Thank you, sir. I've been chatting with Ken Eford. Ken oversees business development for Noblis Health Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol HLTH and on the Toronto Stock Exchange's NHC. Noblis is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Find a link to the Noblis Health website on the homepage of ours, ellismartinreport.com. That wraps up this week's edition of the Ellis Martin Report. If you'd like to contact me with any questions pertaining to this broadcast, our client companies, or suggestions for future broadcasts, feel free to do so by emailing me at martinreports at gmail.com. That's martinreports with an S at gmail.com. I appreciate your taking the time to listen and review the content on this program and our website, ellismartreport.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 